I'll tell you a story. I die in my dream, with my family and with others. It's the middle of the night. We're on the plantation, surrounded by oil palm. We're barefoot, in a circle, on our knees. My father is besides me. We all have plastic bags over our heads. Our heads are bent down. Our hands are tied behind our backs. There are no birds, there is no wind. I'm thirsty. My lips are cracked. My skin is broken. I have no wetness left in my body. Then I change into an oil bed. I'm in the oil palm tree, looking down at the people in their circle. I'm a human again, back in the circle. Back and forth, back and forth, oil and human again and again. Some of the palm trees are not trees. They are black and green and tall and strong. They stand in the shadows. Soldiers. Uniforms the same colour as oil palm. Bayonets sharp as oil palm fruit. A gunshot. My father falls. Another gunshot. The one next to him falls. Oil palms shoot us and our bodies collapse. I'm the last. I'm an oriole bird in the tree and I see myself fall. I sit and watch myself bleeding. The sun does not rise. Time has stopped. My name's Adolf Mura and I came from West Papua. I came as a refugee, so life in West Papua it's it's very uh, very beautiful. Um, from six to seven years old, we know how to do hunting. Um, with the local villages, we never feel hungry. You find your food everywhere. You, we find our own food. <laughs> up on the mountain, it's our playground. We climb up the trees. Um, that's fun. We're making bow and arrow. Um, if you came home in the evening and brought one bird from your hunting, that's, it's proud. Hunting your own food, even as a child, catching birds or gathering the eggs. Just the memory makes Adolf's face light up. Hi, and welcome back. I'm Zelda, and this is Get Your Armies Off Our Bodies. Produced by Wage Peace on the unceded land of the island continent known as Australia. Over the next two episodes, we're in West Papua. 
that's the western half of New Guinea Island, currently occupied by Indonesia. It's only a few hundred kilometres from mainland Australia. We'll talk colonisation and resistance and share the stories of two boats that crossed the seas, connecting the two island nations. Journeys full of danger and hope and stories that broke the silence around West Papua and her people. Adolf's a great friend of ours, a powerful activist with Wage Peace, a father and a storyteller, and someone who remembers village life in West Papua with great love. When you start hunting further up to the mountains, when you find the uh, bird nest, we always want to find the uh, uh, eggs from the um, uh, bird, for example, with the bird of paradise. It's gold. Um, if you find uh, one of the eggs of the bird of paradise, it's just amazing. It's it's a gift from the God that you know they um, lay the eggs every 15 years. It's very for a long time. 15 years later, they can lay another eggs. So when we when we go in the bush. That's one of the, our aim to um, find, hopefully that could be a bird paradise at nest. And if it's nest, we should find the eggs. And if it's there is an eggs, that's a gold. Mm. <laughs> it's a fun. Bulls is our playground. Um, Reefers is our play- playground. And we never feel fear. West Papua has been occupied by Indonesia for decades. Adolf's father took a job with the police. He had to try and walk a line between the people of the village where he was deployed and Indonesian police commanders. He cared about the villages, but at the same time, he has to do his job. Um, so that's kind of tricky for him as well, that... He has to work in both ways. He been deployed with some Indonesians and the Papuan, one or two West Papuan policemen, and the rest is uh, dominated by uh, Indonesian uh, police. To keep it under control, um, they can keep their eye on uh, everyone. So he has to. F- find a way to treat the local and also how to put himself between the local and his uh, chief commander. So it's hard for him. The police commander might order attacks on villages as part of land grabbing or other abuses. So when some of the police attack the villages, this is what um, really said because the impact it's come back to to him the police um, forces came to the village and they shoot one of the local but this is a mission coming from the uh, uh, head commander Adolf's family felt the backlash that's where we get uh, attack so uh, the house that we live in the village were destroyed the time as well so it's a kind of destroy our uh, peaceful life as a kid. Mm. 
it's it's a kind of very sad. The Indonesians they know they can against the rules in the village. They can against the customs we have. If they done something wrong, no one can judge them. Mm. Killing people, for example, uh, they can just shoot the locals. Um, there is no justice, so they can do anything they want. The way Adolf tells it, for a long time, villagers assumed this was a local problem. They didn't realise that it was happening everywhere, that the whole territory was occupied. Indonesia claimed West Papua after winning national independence from the Dutch in 1945. The Dutch remained in control until 1962, when they handed West Papua to the UN, who signed it over to Indonesia in 1963. By then, a large Indonesian military invasion was well underway. Then the United Nations signed off on a bogus act of free choice in 1969, when a small number of local leaders were intimidated into voting to join Indonesia. Australia has always provided diplomatic and material support to Indonesia's occupation, including weapons. Eventually, Adolf's dad was transferred to a regional city with a bigger Indonesian population, including most of the students at Adolf's school. When we go into uh, adapted with um, Indonesian kids, it was hard because they're thinking that we kids coming from the village and we still don't have the education school. Um, feels like the discriminations in education. Um, for example, we cannot use the Indonesian language. We very much speak in uh, the tribe language, mm. not knowing Indonesian language. And the teachers get really, really upset. They can, yeah, they can flock us. They slap mm. us. And it was hard. And that sort of impact to us that this system, uh, colonialism that Indonesians um, did to us is... But we were lucky enough because one of my uncle, he, uh, growing up in the towns, but also he... We were lucky enough to get an education uh, since the Dutch were occupying the islands. So he's his his kind of um, role model. He already had his um, experiences that he been to that situation. He's helping us. He wants us to be educated as well. Because we were sad. Adolf's uncle also had traditional knowledge. He took Adolf and his brother to build a traditional house, reconnecting to culture. And that helped restore their confidence and self-belief. It's connected from where we used to live in the village. So we moved into... Um, uh, brave to have the knowledge that we could start reading, we could start um, uh, writing, but also in, in maths as well. Um, and I was quite faster, to be honest. Finished my secondary school. So 
he's kind of my hero. Inspired by building a traditional house, Adolf decided to study mechanical engineering. That meant leaving home to go to Jayapura, West Papua's capital city. And that's where the scale of Indonesia's colonisation finally became clear. I just realised that this, there is an occupation under the Indonesians. When we come into the city, it's more control. So even the um, Indonesians, uh, civilians, they can fight against the um, indigenous with no problem. Mm-hmm. They can um, come in and s- slaughter the West Papuan. This is like the longest um, uh, occupation that's never going to be end and unless we have to uh, fight to asking for the solution. This was in the 90s. West Papua was a major source of profit for the Indonesian government and military and for US, Australian and other first world companies. The fattest profits came from the world's biggest gold mine, Grasberg, operated by Freeport McMoran. It's an old story. West Papuans were losing their land and livelihoods. Guerrilla forces have fought back since the 1960s, but resistance goes far beyond this. Student protest has grown immensely over the years. I was around in the capital city and hang out with a lot of people and I see injustice. People want to fight. I related to a lot of activists. A lot of people did protests and rally, and I put myself into that, um, walking down the street, marching with the group to Parliament House. Dispossession and other abuses meant rural communities also kept resisting, and demands for independence from Indonesia kept growing. The Indonesian military responded with civilian massacres. Students and others protested in response. The last rally I attended was the um, um, massacre are happening in two different places in West Papua. It's actually three. Three incidents happened. Um, one in Nabire, one in Wamena, and one also in um, Manukwari. So that was kind of like memorial um, Biak Massacre. The Biak Massacre. One of many very dark days. Biak is an island off West Papua's north coast. In 1998, Indonesia's democracy movement overthrew the dictator Suharto in Jakarta. People in Biak rallied peacefully, calling for independence. On July 2nd, 1998 in Biak City, a flag, the morning star, the symbol of West Papua's hope for freedom, was raised on top of the water tower that overlooked the town. 
In response, the military used naval guns to murder scores of people. Bullets fell like rain. People ran screaming. Mass graves appeared among the coconut groves. More than 200 people lost their lives. And imprisoned, raped and mutilated many more. No one has been held to account. Despite the risk, Papuans continue raising the Morning Star flag and facing the consequences. That's what happened in the three massacres that Adolf was protesting against. We did the rally uh, during a day and in the evening um, suddenly we get the um, army and the police um, approaching the um, boarding house where I was staying with the friends just at the um, um, university campus. And yeah, so left and the night just run with the clothes in my bag and run to the bush up on the mountain. Adolf escaped to his parents' town, but refuge didn't last long. So I went back, stay with them for for a week and see some su- su- suspicious uh, faces that spy on us because they, they're chasing us, obviously. And I just tell my parents, this face, similar face that I've seen in in capital city, like, uh, that's, a, that's a spy. They say, so what are you going to do? Um, I say, well, it's a scare and I'm worried about you guys because, you know, yeah, they will um, attack my family as well. So I've told them that I'm going to leave. And it was hard for my parents to... Um, to, to let me go because I've just come back. Uh, my mom was crying and begging that whatever happened, you, you have to stay with us. But we know the Indonesian army and the police, it's very brutal. I saw them again, first time. I have to say goodbye again after three days. That meant going back to the capital, Jayapura. But they still needed somewhere to escape. Across the border into Papua New Guinea. We stayed in Wewak, in Papua New Guinea. And we met some of the um, uh, refugees who already fled the country from West Papua in early 1980s. That was the big massacre also. So this family, they've been living in Papua New Guinea for a very long time. It was hard for this family, so I was live with these people, with the family for a month, um, tried to get the protection, but still very uh, hard because the um, relationship between Indonesians and Papua New Guinea, it's very tight. I feel like there, there is no hope. Um, and Indonesian government used the local Papua New Guinean to attack us as well. Um, uh, yeah, gangs. Indonesian paid them a lot, so they come in and attack us at the um, 
um, at the place where we're staying. So it's, it wasn't safe. With no official refugee protection, attacks by gangs who were paid by Indonesian agencies wasn't the only danger they faced. This was after the 2002 Bali terrorist bomb. The Papua New Guinea police also accused Adolf and his friends of being behind the bomb. It's just a fake information, but they PNG intelligent because Indonesians give them um, an information. So they took us to the station, asked a lot of questions, interrogation and stuff. We were treated really badly. Uh, they said, oh, look, um, it's up to you. If you want to stay here, we're going to persecute with them. Um, um, a member of the Bombali and stuff. And the local um, tribe, uh, chief from the area we staying at the um, refugee uh, camp, he said, look, um, these people, I've known them, they, they came as a genuine uh, refugee. They run away from his Papua and nothing to do with um, Bombali that you accused them. So we get out from there. And I say this is not safe. So me and my f- couple other friends, we decide come back to West Papua. <laughs> so we came back to West Papua, um, lived there just for a couple of weeks. We just stay at the um, friend's house. Um, day times and night time, we just sitting inside the house, never go out. So um, talking to talking to friends, uh, communication through the uh, phone for a bit. They say, hey, look, um, we're willing to organize the boat. And um, there is a family who happy to donate the big, massive tree from their sacred place. The donated tree was to make a large traditional canoe. It was given by the family and the village of Thomas Wongai. He was one of the leaders of West Papua's independence movement and died as a political prisoner in 1996. So friends came around and uh, say, hey, um, someone's willing to build a boat and then happy give it to you guys to use that and going across to Australia. This is the way for us to um, go out there to Australia and see if we can bring the um, message out. can be here by the international community. When the canoe was ready, they travelled around the coast from north to south picking up passengers, including other activists who had escaped from the capital city, Jayapura. We communicate with them, oh, the boat will come and pass um, your way, so when you're ready, uh, you can jump on the boat. Uh, we're on the way to Australia. free. It's express. It's no immigration process at all. You don't need a passport or anything. I was quite young, around 22, 23. Uh, we've got kids around eight, seven years old, was on the boat. And we've got an elder as well. So the elder who can um, drive the boat, we asked them to um, jump on the boat because of their knowledge fishing when they go out in the night they can read the nature with they can read the moon they can read the star they can um, feel the uh, wind and also f- see the current <laughs>
We don't have compass and we don't have a map or anything installed on the boat. It's a very traditional wooden canoe. We left in the middle of the night. So it was quite dark and um, raining and storm. So it was good. There is no uh, border patrol, navy and stuff. And we didn't know where at the Australia is where we're gonna heading to so we just went follow the um, storm the next day it was beautiful weather and uh, we realized that we in the middle of the ocean and we can't see any land Take a deep breath and we say either way tonight or the next day we will be will be arrive or will be survive or otherwise we we cannot die. The second day uh, the engines broke. Um, me and my uh, couple other friends we just using our uh, very general knowledge because it was raining and it got really wet into the engine so we pull out some part let it dry out and we put it back in it's work we keep continue um sail with the boat um but we don't know where we're heading to to the west or to the north or to the east uh, south we don't know we were pray and worship to God a lot. They thought it would be only a quick trip, which meant they brought almost no food. All they had to drink was water gathered from the rain. But we've got those two couple, Elder and the boat. Um, in the night, they read the star. Um, that's where can tell us mm-hmm. they are south and the east. And when the sun rises in the morning, that's our east. So we just keep heading against the... Um, sun and then five days later we saw like a little um, dot like a little full stop it's out of in the middle of the ocean so we're coming close the uh, little dot a full stop it's like a little um, trees from far away we say oh this is look like a um, coconut tree um, being taken by the current in the middle of the ocean so we came closer, came closer, it's become a bit bigger like a rocks. Came closer, we say, oh, that's an island. Came closer, that's actually the Australian continental. It's like from far away, you cannot even imagine. And it's massive, massive. Mm. But we still don't know if we actually end up in Australia. Close to the coast, the waves were two metres high. They could have smashed the canoe to pieces. Three of us, me and my other friends, we, we swam 200 metres to, um, to the beach. And we want to try to find any sign if we actually in Australia. And it's like open. There is no one around as well. We find the bottles at the cans. So we just saw the um, Coca-Cola can 
Made in Australia. We're just like, we're just Australia. This is Australia. <laughs> survivors we are witnesses too so yes um we crying when we hugging each other and we just say uh, this is australia so we move on walking along the beach just to see if we can find any any sign of human being around this area but nothing at all we went to see the big massive sign. People put the sign to a dangerous area, no swim at all. So it's got the sign of crocodile and a shark. It's <laughs> lucky, it's like we've been swimming on the ocean. Um, there is no attack from the wild uh, animals at all. So um, we think that a god really testing us on the day and but also protect us. So that's five days on the ocean with no food exposed in an open canoe. I pull off um, the clothes that I wear. My skin just came off. Um, it was very pain and it was hard. So our skin very much um, broke its skin irritation so just laying down um, on the sand and trying to get comfortable and we stay overnight the next day in the in the evening one of the uh, custom airplane flew around and saw the boat and went away an hour later and we heard uh, helicopters flew around the beach Their next stop was a familiar one for refugees in this country. Detention on Christmas Island, which already held many other refugees from around the world. But West Papuan refugees put Australia's relationship with Indonesia in the spotlight. They were much more politically sensitive and got lots of attention from Canberra. We had 10 politicians from Parliament flew came to meeting us in Christmas Islands. I remember Barnaba Joyce was there. Um, Carrie Neto was one of the um, uh, Green Party uh, senators as well. Uh, there is quite a few more. Uh, our lawyer say this has never happened. He says he had the strong feeling that they probably give, will give you uh, protection really quick. And it's eventually happened in three months' time. Indonesian president Bambang Yudhoyono, he was trying, came across to Christmas Islands meeting us in, in detention. It's, it's really confronting. And we say, well, when we were in West Papua, when we had a lot of tragic things happening over there, you didn't want to talk to us. The problem is it's actually happening in West Papua, not, not us in Christmas Island. It's too late. So we put the statement through our lawyer to stop him not to come. As Adolf said, all that attention meant they got protection visas in just three months, while other refugees were still waiting after several years. Leaving them behind, Adolf says, was a terrible feeling, as if he and his friends were not being released at all. At the same time, 
Many other activist friends had stayed in West Papua. Not all of them survived. Uh, after I arrived in Australia, they, they've been uh, kidnapped. Um, they get poisoned. So they're going back to university again to finish their study. The food that they're eating through the canteen, it's been um, poisoned by the Indonesian intelligence. So it was specifically uh, given to them. And intelligent kidnap some of the guys from uh, boarding house as well. So I lose um, three of my friends. They decide to stay, and obviously they get get killed. So it was very tough moment when I heard them to um, pass away. I couldn't believe it. Yeah, um, it was hard to take it. My mom and my dad still still alive my siblings still okay but it's hard for them to stay in one place so every year they have to moving around just to um, indonesians army intelligence they don't they don't sleep they obviously keep their eyes open all the time so my mom and my, my dad now they say oh look um, you just have to be happy um, we're still alive, but we know there is an eye always on us. When I left them, I was uh, 15, and then I came back to visit them again, and then since then I've never seen them again, so yeah. Adolf does what he set out on the canoe to do, try to raise West Papuan's demands for independence and justice. The abuses continue. In February 2023, after this interview was recorded, Security forces killed 12 people in another massacre in Wamena, adding to a long list, including Biak, Paniai, Nduga, so many others. The war criminal has done a lot of massacre in, in a few different um, areas. People get shot in the village without um, any explanation. The most recently, it's in the highlands. Unduga, um, Unduga, it's in Timika. It's right in the in the highlands. It's not far from um, gold mining, and also in Wamena as well uh, in Tanjaya. That the most people has been killed as well, um, and there is no much. Informations came out from there. 60,000 civilians have been displaced by the recent massacres and attacks alone. Military-backed dispossession for extraction is accelerating. It's not just mining, it's also large-scale logging and oil palm plantations. And after decades of migration from Indonesia, West Papuans are becoming a minority in their own land. There are more soldiers on the ground than ever and Australia's involvement increases. For example, here in Australia, we've, we've trained a lot of Indonesian military. When they did the training ex, uh, here, they're going back to Indonesia. More on that in the next episode, as well as the story of another remarkable journey between West Papua and Australia by boat, the Freedom Flotilla. Yeah.
This is Get Your Armies Off Our Bodies, the first season of Peace Pod, produced on unceded Aboriginal country on the continent known as Australia. Production credits and other links are on the episode webpage. But we do want to mention Sophie Chow. It's from her research in West Papua that we have Rosalina's Dream, which opened the episode. I still have very strong faith that for the future Papua get independent, Papua should be free. And all the listeners that I recommend write to your local politicians that West Papua is not safe. Uh, human rights abuses in West Papua need to be stopped. So that's my message, my call. I'm Zelda and we're Wage Peace. Wishing you all a future of Earth care, not warfare.